This is a Stimulus Network podcast. Hello and welcome to the Cosmic Shed. I'm Andrew and in today's episode we're going to be talking to Kelly Girardi. And if you don't know Kelly, and I'm sure many of you do, Kelly is a very popular science communicator and involved in the commercial spaceflight sector. She's just about to release a book called Not Necessarily Rocket Science, A Beginner's Guide to Life in the Space Age. I've had the delightful privilege of being able to read the book ahead of publication because I've been reviewing it for Physics World. That's a written review rather than the Physics World Stories podcast. And I caught up with Kelly yesterday to talk about the book and her life in commercial spaceflight. We talk about flying in the Vomit Comet, Mars One, you know, that idea to send people on a one-way mission to Mars. She was linked to that. And there's also something really quite wonderful about Star Wars in there, but I won't spoil it. Just quickly to say, sorry, it's been so long, but we're back now. And we're going to follow this up quite quickly with, um, I don't know if you've seen My Octopus Teacher on Netflix. It's a wonderful, wonderful film. If you have access to a Netflix account, do check it out because we're going to be talking to the producer and director of My Octopus Teacher very soon. And I think we're going to have to do an episode on The Mandalorian or Discovery or both. We just have to, don't we? Anyway, let's get to the conversation with Kelly Girardi. And I began by asking her about the book, Not Necessarily Rocket Science, A Beginner's Guide to Life in the Space Age. I wrote Not Necessarily Rocket Science to really reflect my non-traditional path in the space industry. I think when we think of folks who work in, in the space industry, you tend to think of engineers, of which there are many, and which that role is incredibly important. But I think there are a lot of behind-the-scenes roles that really do have an impact, and I've been able to ferret out some of those for myself in my path. And I really wanted to make the point that this is an industry that's for everyone. This is the past and the future of all of humanity, and we all have a role to play in humanity's next giant leap. So that was really the catalyst for the book, is trying to communicate, you know, you can navigate the commercial space industry or the government space industry as a non-engineer. And I drew comparisons to the Renaissance in the beginning of the book, where art was just only one manifestation of this new way of thinking, and that cultural innovation was also happening across all the different disciplines of medicine, technology, religion, politics, philosophy, science, you know, and and similarly here in the space age, engineering innovation is just representing one small slice of the space age. I view it as a broader cultural movement and our next giant leap will require the contributions of artists, engineers, and everyone in between. So that was really the the impetus for the book and, and what I wanted to communicate. For people who don't know, what's your role in the space industry? So I'm coming up on 10 years in the commercial space industry. And in the past, I've held roles in policy, media, business development, operations. It's been a pretty wild ride. I've gotten to dabble in quite a few different things. I've worked with organizations like the Commercial Space Flight Federation, very Star Trek name, but in fact, it's a U.S. trade organization, including some international companies. Of all of the commercial companies working to make commercial human spaceflight a reality, um, I've had the uh, opportunity to lead business development at a real rocket company, Mastin Space Systems. 
And then on the personal side, I'm a citizen scientist, so I've been able to test spacesuits and NASA-supported research in microgravity as a part of a citizen science suborbital research program called Project Possum, which is a mouthful. Um, the acronym is Polar Suborbital Science in the Upper Mesosphere. <laughs> so I've had the privilege through all of that to build a large science communication platform on social media. And that was really where I um, had the idea to, to write a book about it instead of keeping myself to small captions under photos that I was uploading. I wanted to tie the whole narrative together and show people that this is absolutely reachable. Anyone who wants to participate and have an impact in this industry can do so. There's there's a lot to talk about there. Where do we start? Project Possum. What does it mean? What's it actually doing? Citizen science is just such a fascinating development in, in the past hundred years of science, right? It's the thought that you know, anyone can contribute to scientific research, whether you're acting as a human test subject in a study or whether you're conducting, you know, research that is towards a broader goal. NASA in the past has used this when, you know, think of um, JunoCam looking at images of Jupiter, just returning mass amounts of data and then asking the public, hey, you know, if you have an interest in this, help us sift through all of these images. Let's find the most like geologically interesting <laughs> things to look at um, and then image process and really just democratizing access to scientific research. Project Possum is an evolution of that. And so, again, the mouthful, that's polar suborbital science in the upper mesosphere. What that really means is in, in our atmosphere, there's this middling layer called the mesosphere. And it's uh, pretty poorly understood, actually. And, and we haven't had a lot of different um, ways to access it. You know, spaceships tend to go too high, um, airplanes, jets go too low. And so there's not a lot of ways to access that environment. And so with the development of the suborbital um, commercial companies and suborbital spacecraft that would go really nicely through it, this was a effort to see if we can put together a crew of suborbital astronauts to conduct citizen science and understand that layer of the atmosphere. And the other part of this that relates to climate research is the highest altitude clouds um, called noctilucent clouds exist in the mesosphere. And we believe that those are really sensitive indicators of um, human caused climate change. And so the idea would be to study some of those. So that was the initial mission that was conceived um, since then, the program has expanded to include a whole wide range of different types of research that could be done suborbitally. And the part that I've really fallen in love with is bioastronautics and, you know, being able to test commercial spacesuits, being able to, you know, experience the free fall environment that a parabolic flight provides you and to be able to conduct research during those precious minutes of uh, zero G. Okay, tell me about that. Come on. I want to know all about that. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the best analog, I think I had someone describe it to me once and it stuck with me is imagine that you're floating in a pool of water um, on your back and then just subtract the water. And that's sort of the, you know, experience and sensation of, of zero G, you know, while Flights that mimic uh, microgravity do take a big parabolic arc. They're going up, they're diving down, they're going up. That's how they achieve microgravity. You don't get that same roller coaster sensation of the butterflies and the stomach flipping. At least I don't. There are sick bags Velcroed everywhere on the aircraft. So <laughs> obviously it's called Vomit Comet for a reason. But um, I, I never experienced that. Instead, to me, it was a, a very, very serene feeling of slowly your limbs 
you know, floating up in the cabin until you're fully weightless. Um, and so there's just nothing like it. And I can't wait to experience it one day in space, the real thing. <laughs> oh, but so you, you you are aiming for space, right? A hundred percent. It's it's really the sole goal in my life. <laughs> I, I, I aspire to fly as a suborbital researcher and... Um, I, I would love to fly in particular on, on Virgin Galactic, but hey, I'm, I'm not going to be picky <laughs> whichever <laughs> ride is available first. Um, but but yeah, that that's the goal. And I think that would be the, the real, it's my Mount Everest, right? I mean, my whole career has been working 10 years ago to try to help democratize access to space so that this isn't just, you know, the realm of NASA and other um government space agencies in the world and instead opening up access to space for researchers for students for academics and even for tourists i I view tourists as an equally important part of expanding earth's economic sphere and for me to see that come full circle and to help try to create the opportunity for myself to go would would be the dream Hmm. how close are you at the moment gosh i mean Pretty close. I, I think it's it's more, uh, you know, I have the research ready. There's, a, you know, a, a laundry list, an endless list of things that I could use four minutes of free fall on Virgin Galactic to study. Um, and, and so many of my colleagues in Project Possum, we really have a bench of researchers ready to fly. We're just waiting for the ride. Okay, right. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Okay, right. But that, just to go back a bit, because you, you studied film originally. <laughs> <laughs> I did. It's like my deepest, darkest secret. <laughs> not not one that I purposefully keep hidden, obviously, but I, people are always so surprised um, when it comes up. So I wanted to address that frontally in the book that, yes, my, my degree is in film and media. And um, I did once have dreams of working. I always enjoyed science communication. I thought maybe my film degree would carry me over to a Nat Geo or a Discovery where, where I could really you know participate from the storytelling side of science. So that's always been interesting to me. You know, I, I had the opportunity to do an internship I uh, for a few years in film. I realized that that wasn't quite the exact fit I was looking for in the entertainment industry. And um, through a series of very fortunate for me events, was able to come across some of my earliest mentors in the space industry who really opened doors to do media for the commercial space industry, which 10 years ago was um, an awesome opportunity to get in at a semi-ground floor of what some of these companies would soon achieve. Hmm. Are you a, an a avid film watcher? I am, but you know, it, it's funny, like people expect that I would have a really high bar for scientific accuracy in films. And it's the exact opposite. Like, I, I don't want to think about any of that. I want to enjoy it. Some of my favorite, um, you know, older sci-fi films are Gattaca, Event Horizon. Like, oh. I, I love Moon, Solaris. Like, you know, th- those are my um, real go-to I sat through gravity with an astronaut. I'm not going to name his name, but it was the most annoying experience in the theater <laughs> because I was getting elbowed every three minutes. Like that, this is that's not this is bullshit. This is you know, it's like, it's like man, like you can't even enjoy it. And and so yeah. I I no longer watch um, science fiction movies with astronauts. <laughs> no, I think that's a, that's the same reason I don't watch it. <laughs> Insufferable. <laughs> But yeah, I, I love I love movies. I, I, I really, you know, I'm a, I'm a visual person, so I, I do really enjoy sci-fi movies, and I'm very happy to suspend disbelief for the entirety of the movie, and I, I don't um, evaluate it on scientific accuracy. 
Okay, so there's a moment in the book which just excites me greatly, excites my daughter Lyra greatly as well. And I, I just, so you're working at a at a company that makes space engines, right? And one day, well, you tell the story. Absolutely. So we 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 got an email from Skywalker. So this is when I was at Maston Space Systems uh, in Mojave, and we got an email from Skywalker sound production team, which of course is George Lucas's star Wars, um, you know, just the coolest email you could possibly get is what I'm trying <laughs> to say. That's why I'm stuttering because it still just like evokes a sense of wonder in me and the team. And they were wondering, they were filming, I think it was episode seven and they were going to collect sound and they were wondering if we would like to participate and donate some of our launch sounds to the production and so i could not reply fast enough yes yes please come <laughs> and and so we were so so privileged to host ben burt and um the skywalker sound team and we were able to hook them up with a flight of, of one of our um rocket powered landers and test beds and we had them collect the sound for it and it was just such a fun day in the desert and it really just drove home this thought that all of us obviously who were working at the company had looked to star wars in our youth and in our adulthood as like the dream and you know one of the the coolest analogs about working in the space industry and trying to bring that future to life and so it was just really powerful to see that you know they also looked to us as the real life making it happen and that tiny little piece of Mastin existing in this like iconic film series was just very cool and the team was so gracious they ended up sending us a um you know special non-canon cd just for us that was a mock-up of a tie fighter um, flight test and it was using our sound with a little bit of dialogue and so that is just one of my most precious possessions yeah, that's incredibly awesome. I'm going to have to ask this question, and I realise you're going to have to say no, but is there any way we could play a clip of that? Gosh, on the I, I think I am explicitly not allowed to share it. It was a few years ago, but I do remember a certain uh, <laughs> signing. So I would have to triple check on yeah. that, but I will get back yeah. to you if I can. Don't worry, don't worry. Yeah, I mean, if you can, that's wonderful, but I know it's a no. It's definitely a no. That's just how that works. It, you work in the commercial space sector, right? And to me, the space sector has always, until recently, obviously been about NASA and ESA and Roscosmos and, you know, Jackson and that sort of thing. And it's it's a real change. And you're based in Florida. Very currently, now. yeah. I just, just relocated. I just signed a one-year lease. I grew up in Jupiter, Florida, so... You know, everyone around me jokes that, you know, I've been on brand since day one down yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, and we recently, you know, speaking of commercial space, uh, three nights after I arrived here was the Crew 1 launch. So I was able to actually, Jupiter sits on the east coast of Florida in between Orlando and Miami. And I was able to watch the countdown on the TV. And then my husband, my daughter and I were able to run outside and look up into the sky a few minutes after liftoff and actually watch Dragon soaring towards the space station. So it it never, ever gets old. I've, I've seen so many launches and I'm, I'm, it's wild to even say that because like, what, what a blessing to see even one. But every single time um, and the stakes just get that much higher when there are humans on board and to see that restored when I think about the transition from government space to commercial space what we're actually doing here is restoring access in the US 
to the space station from U.S. soil, something that we haven't had in 12 years since the space shuttle program was retired. And, and there's just an energy about watching the astronauts suit up, walk through that hallway, you know, ingress into the spaceship. It's just, you know, it's a testament to the capability of the entire species to watch humanity launch you know, off this planet. And so seeing that restored and seeing, you know, being able to watch my daughter watch that through her eyes is just so exciting because I did grow up here in Florida watching shuttle launches and I got to experience the wonder of human spaceflight. And I'm so excited for the next generation to, to be able to see that too. I know, absolutely. But it, it's, it, it's been talked about for a while and now it's it's totally here, isn't it? This mesh between the commercial and the government, and you know, you you're watching it on NASA. I'm watching it on NASA TV, and there's there's people from NASA sitting next. Oh, we've previous Cosmic Shed guest. Yeah, Nicole Stott, absolutely. With people from um, SpaceX, just you know, side by side, then you've got the, the literally NASA. I mean, it's a weird thing. You've got kind of NASA logos on Tesla cars. For SpaceX, you know, this is a weird uh, thing going on there, but it's a beautiful thing. It's here now. And it was when I read your book, the, the opening chapter of your book about this being the space age, further on in the book, chapters about commercial space industry and things. It really sort of c- cemented it in my head that we are in this now. Yeah, absolutely. Do you see the government's space industry disappearing or is it always going to be there do you think i think it always needs to be there and i actually think it's a call to action for our generation to make sure that demand continues to exist at the public support level you know i think in the beginning of this there was this uh, and when i say in the beginning of this i mean you know a decade or so ago when it was really the emerging commercial space sector i i think there was a slightly inaccurate uh portrayal of this being commercial space versus government space, right? And and I, I think, as you just pointed out, it's like that that's so far from what we're seeing. We're seeing this incredible cooperation of both. And, and that partnership, that public-private partnership is what unlocks our momentum and, and our further access. But look, public support is always the key ingredient for everything. You know, whether it's a commercial company, you need to market for, for that to make business sense, or whether it's government, you know, leading the way. And there are a lot of things that, you know, space exploration does not always have a good ROI, right? There's not a lot of spaces for that really greenfield exploration of, you know, investigating what's out there. There's not a business return that we can promise on some of those things. And we need our government to prioritize that exploration and lead the way, knowing there may not be a specific business return, but because we're doing it for the spirit of learning more about our planet, about our solar system, you know, I think what we're seeing right now is the perfect combination. We're commercializing low earth orbit where government has already paved the way where we were able to share knowledge from the government to the commercial industry. Here's how to do this well. Here's how to do this safely. Go innovate, make it better, make it faster, do it better, um, bring us further. And then for government, we're able to unlock all of those savings from taxpayers to really be able to focus on the science for, for whom there is no other you know, pathfinder right now other than our governments. And so I, I think that combination has to exist. It's very delicate and it's worth preserving. Mm, yeah, no, it is. But it, this wouldn't be happening at all right now, would it, without the commercial space industry? Yeah, abs- absolutely. You know, I, I'm 
a huge evangelist of commercial <laughs> space flight. I, I just can't say enough about how important it is. And, it, you know, to, to watch SpaceX and just to name them as one company to watch their arc of, you know, coming from, you know, Elon Musk kind of commenting to himself, oh, have we not been to Mars yet as a species, <laughs> you know, all those years ago? And then being, you know, very disappointed and kind of frustrated to hear that. And then taking it, one person taking it upon themselves to kind of investigate that, right? And then to build a company and wrap a business model around it. And then to do it all in-house and to partner with our government to be able to bring to life these capabilities for the whole world is just... I, it's a wild time to be alive to see that possible. And then to see that model repeated across all of these other companies, Blue Origin is going to be capable of, you know, the same things. We're seeing all of these launch companies, Rocket Lab just had a successful launch. The, the sort of introduction of reusability in rockets has shaken the entire world. Even Russia now is finally investing in reusability. And so the cool thing about the commercial industry and having business competition is by the very nature of them being for-profit companies, they're pushing innovation in the marketplace. They're pushing competitiveness. They're requiring everyone else. There's no longer just one company who's going to get all the defense contracts historically, right? Now there's competition for it. So you better bring your A game. You better show how you're going to do it, you know, better, faster, more efficiently. And I, I think that benefits all of us. Yeah, no, that does totally. Lovely stuff. So there's uh, there's a couple of chapters in the book about Mars One, right? <laughs> and I don't I don't want to um, I don't want to talk about it too much because I want people to know that they have to get this book, right? And if you get the book for nothing else, it's these chapters. I think it's brilliant. It's fascinating. <laughs> but, but just tell me about your experience a little bit about Mars One. Sure. Yeah. You know, I have to take back what I said about my film degree being my biggest, darkest secret. <laughs> I, I, I think Mars One takes the cake, right? You know, <laughs> the thing that I would share, I agree. You know, you should read it in full because I, I did take care to present mm -hmm. like a deeply nuanced view and experience there. But, you know, the thing everyone has to remember um, is this was never an engineering company or group. This is a media company with this single supernova premise of, hey, we have the, you know, technological capability to send humans to Mars, arguably. It's a funding issue and not an engineering issue primarily, boiled down to the absolute, you know, simplest terms, right? And so their thought was, you know, this would be, you know, the Olympics on steroids. This would be like the biggest viewed event ever in history. Can we capitalize on that to ensure that we can fund something like this, right? So on principle, I was hooked because I too believe that this is more of a, you know, an economic issue than an engineering issue at this particular point. And so what I wanted to do is further the conversation of, yes, this is possible to do. Yes, this is worth doing. Space settlement, that is. Um, and here's the commercial space industry who can help us move the needle on this. And so Mars One was attracting all of this media attention. And I felt like it was getting so lost in the giggle factor of humans on Mars and, you know, dying there and, you know, one-way missions and, you know, sort of the, the laughable factors that I wanted to sort of get in there and redirect the conversation into something a little more productive and hype generating about Look, you're alive in this unique window in history, the first time in 4.5 billion years where it's even possible to talk about this. And, you know, so let's 
stop giggling about it and let's start talking about like how do we make that happen and um you know there it didn't go <laughs> as well as i planned i was a little <laughs> naive in thinking that you know some of the interviews i gave and and some of the attempts i made to try to convey that nuance um didn't always land the way i wanted them to so it was a great learning experience uh you know and and it also taught me a lot about the future of our species right and i i won't overshare um, the details in the book. But I think when it came down to actually imagining like what are the values that are being exported off of this planet, it is critically important to look at who is exporting those values, who is steering that ship. And, you know, in my experience, after, you know, a decade of, as I called it, whiteboards and war rooms, it's like I really did walk away with the understanding that those who are designing the technology do hold the power um, to decide how it's used. And when I think about values like diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, big hot topics in our industry and in the world right now, I think about it in that context. It's like when we're talking about things like space settlement and the future of our species, we are literally talking about the future of humanity. And it's really important that we have a a wide range of representation of our species in that conversation. Totally. Um, In terms of, you know, who represents us who um has the power there's been some pretty good news from uh, my point of view on your side of the water um on that front recently yeah. there's been a change of president uh, although you know not 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 everybody accepts it just yet <laughs> we have so far to go it's like when we think about what we're dealing with on earth it's like i i have to think like the audacity that we think we're ready to go settle another yeah. planet yeah. <laughs> sometimes is just wild but yeah yeah i think it reminds me of the uh, i can't remember who said it but you know that idea that um the future is already here it's just not evenly distributed it's the same <laughs> the same thing with intelligence right so yep. there's um You've got a new president coming in January. What does that mean for the for the space industry? Do you have a sense of what that means? Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. I think a lot of this uh, tends to get politicized. A lot of programs in the U.S., especially space exploration programs, of course, any president coming in wants to leave their thumbprint on something. It's their legacy, their program, right? But at the end of the day, space exploration and any other science can't effectively run on political budget cycles. It, it just, it's not set up for that, right? And so take the commercial crew program, for example, despite, you know, President Trump has come out and said, you know, some wildly inaccurate statements about NASA saying NASA was closed, you know, before I got there and look at it now. Um, and even commercial crew, it's like, you know, look what we accomplished. You know, that was a, a program that was really spearheaded during the Obama administration and even further back, like these things have been in development over decades. Right. And so it's um, impossible to try one administration to take credit for any specific thing. And it's also impossible for any one administration to completely derail our progress. Right. And so I I think it's actually a good thing with, with um, president elect Biden, coming in, you know, it's TBD exactly on things like the National Space Council, right? Like, will he keep that? I happen to think that that was a a really great initiative. I I think it brings an important perspective from, you know, citizens um, to talk about their their government and commercial hybrid goals. Um, But when it comes to NASA, like, 
we can all rest assured that there are going to be really capable folks, you know, at, at the highest levels who are helping continue to spearhead our progress. Will 2024 Artemis moon landings happen? I say no in that timeline, but I would have said no even if Trump was continuing. It's just um, a very unlikely timetable. But will the goal of continuing human exploration in space continue? Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, a, a, a bipartisan effort in the long run. What I'm particularly excited about, and I'm not alone in this, is your vice president, your incoming vice president. That's that's very exciting. Huge, huge. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm so inspired. This is a, it's a historic moment for the U.S. Um, and long overdue, right? It's a, my husband um, is actually originally from Germany. And so to him, it, you know, having had female leadership you know, for his life, um, it's sort of a, oh, wow, yeah, I guess the U.S. has never done this. That's crazy, <laughs> you know? And, and so it's, um, you know, it's so meaningful for us to see representation uh, in all levels, but especially at the highest level, right? It's just, it, it means a lot. And I, I love the idea of my daughter growing up and all little girls growing up knowing that that representation exists and that that ceiling has been punched through so effectively and by such a capable woman. So I, I feel the same way in the space industry, right? It's, it's really important to be able to have visible role models to just know what's possible and to see yourself reflected in those roles. See, when you're talking about you going to space, you're talking about suborbital things. You're not talking about going to being part of Artemis or going to the Mars. Yeah, exactly. I'm talking about suborbital, um, you know, and purely from a cost perspective here, right? It's like, you know, that that is what is going to be the initial um, big flood op gate opening moment for humanity in space. If you imagine, you know, we've sent a couple hundred people to space ever in the history of humanity, right? We're talking less than a thousand. And so a company like Virgin Galactic or, you know, Blue Origin or anyone else who is going to service, um, you know, suborbital space, in their first few years of operation, they will more than double the amount of humans who have ever been to space. And, and that's just a huge shift. And so I think, you know, sometimes suborbital flight is like overlooked as, oh, it's just the stepping stone. It's like, you know, orbital. But when we really think about accessing space and democratizing that and what it means to send more humans and, and to be a more spacefaring species, suborbital is what's going to be the, the real lever and in the near future. Over time, the idea is that we're able to bring the cost down so that, you know, as Elon Musk would say, like, you know, uh, Starship to Mars, like that should be affordable, you know, in the future for you think of, of families uh, emigrating to another planet. <laughs> Amazing, yeah. That sounds that sounds good. I, that's kind of where I was going with the thing with my thinking was that you've obviously got a daughter, and um, have you seen Away or Proxima? I, yes, yes. Yeah. So yeah. you know, being away, astronauts being away from their children, it must be really hard for that kind of amount of time when they're going to Mars. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think it's a it's sort of a you know a, a mindset. I, I look at it in a slightly different way. I I look at it as you know. Um, you know, there's another quote that I'm going to absolutely butcher, but it really has stuck with me in, in principle. And it's that, you know, we are not the owners of, of this future planet where we're simply, you know, um, taking care of it for the next generation. And we are just temporary, 
you know, holders of, of this future. But in fact, our job is to set up the next generation for success. That was sort of the, the gist of it. Um, and I think of that when I think of my daughter and, and the future that I, I believe she deserves and that all of our children deserve to have. And when I think about my own role in that, I know that I would not turn down an opportunity to go be a part of, of paving that path. And I would look at it as an investment in her future, um, more so than, of course it's hard. And I, you know, I've, I've traveled away for work, um, in my daughter's very young life. She's only three right now and just turned three this past week. And I missed almost all of her milestones traveling for work. I missed her crawling. I missed her talking. I missed her walking. You know, these moments that you sort of eventize in your mind as the like have to be there for as a parent. And the reality is like, yeah, it's stung at the time hearing secondhand that, you know, some amazing milestone was achieved. But in reality, it's like that was quickly eclipsed by my pride in her and my excitement to get home to her soon so that I could see it for myself. And um, I, I do think that it's an extraordinary sacrifice that astronauts make to be away from their families in the name of science. And uh, in no way would I ever want to diminish that. But I think I, uh, I also see where they find such value in contributing to their family's future. Yeah. Okay. Listen, I'm going to let you go quite soon. But I, I, I want to ask you about social media a bit. It, there's, there's some good aspects to it for sure right and you've got a lot of followers does that mean you get a fair amount of unwanted attention it does you know it's a both the feature and the bug of social media is you're consistently accessible to everyone right and and that's sort of what you sign yourself up for when you put so much of your life out um, on the internet. And so I'm a perennial oversharer. It's just who I am as a person, whether I'm in front of a computer screen or in front of a person, <laughs> I just, <laughs> you know, exude everything, right? There's no poker face, I'm gonna overshare. Um, and so on the internet, I, I think overall, it's been overwhelmingly positive. I certainly have had, you know, uh, trolls and everyone does. My favorite type are the flat earth variety though. Yeah. Like th- those don't feel so personal. Those are just like yeah. <laughs> fun to look at. Um, yeah. But certainly I have opened myself up for, for more targeted, very personal criticism. Um, and that's, it, it can be hard, right? Especially at the volume that you see it when you have a couple hundred thousand followers, right? It's, it can feel overwhelming. Um but I would say that it has been outweighed by this community that I feel like I can tap into for support. You know, I, again, in the spirit of oversharing, I, uh, earlier this year, I had a miscarriage in the beginning of the second trimester. And it was just, a, you know, such a, a horrible event in my life. But the ability to share what I was feeling, which was a very like isolating type of pain, and to talk about that on my platform and to receive so many hundreds of messages of support or from people who were grateful for me sharing because they had similarly gone through an experience like that and felt isolated. That to me is in a nutshell, the power of social media and the benefit and what keeps me there. It's the, the human connection. Mm-hmm. I, I do, totally, um, I saw that on your thing. I just, I'm, I'm really sorry that that happened, but again, from my point of view, thank you for saying it. I think it's, it is just a topic that, when when it because it happened to us, right? And when it happens to you, 
it's as you say it's so utterly devastating just heartbreaking in in more ways than you could imagine before you actually happened yeah and so many people right it's like that's that's what social media can help shine a light on and it's most positive formulation is is connecting things that would have otherwise been isolating and and really you know sharing in that experience and uplifting each other and i you know i, I think it's just it's a really fascinating time to be on social media. You can sort of see how it can shift into the most negative parts, right? With, you know, cancel culture or trolls or just all of this sort of waves. But it's a relatively new medium and it's going to have a lot of speed bumps and hiccups. But I think, you know, in my personal experience so far, the, the benefits of that have so vastly outweighed some of the negatives, um, you know, and you always have the ability to step away when you need it. And I think that's what I've worked on developing is knowing when I need to take a little bit of a break from the internet and, you know, focus on, on real life. But, uh, yeah, it's been a wild ride on, on social media and, and I love it. I, I really do love connecting with people. So I'm so grateful. Cool. Listen, I'm going to let you go, but it's been wonderful chatting. And um, But when you are back from space, will you come and talk to us again? A thousand percent. This will be the first interview. I, oh. I, I don't know how long or short that time frame will be until yeah. I get there, but I'm hoping it's as short as possible. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. And uh, yes, good luck with the book. It's out, when is it out? Yeah, November 24th. Lovely. Thank you so much. Lovely to chat to you. Awesome. Thank you, Andrew. See you. Talk bye. soon. Thanks again to Kelly Girardi. And of course, we'll post links to Kelly's work and the book on the Cosmic Shed website, thecosmicshed.com. So Kelly also has a new range of uh, merchandise and sort of T-shirts and bags and stuff. Really lovely designs. Uh, it's called, I think it's Woman on a Mission. Couldn't be more suitable, could it? That's Kelly Girardi. We'll be back very soon with an episode, as I say, on My Octopus Teacher. Hope you're all keeping well and... Thank you very much for listening. The Cosmic Shed. Science fact. Science fiction. And everything in between. This podcast is brought to you by the Stimulus Network.